Let's take our Bibles and open them to the book of Isaiah, chapter 36 today we will look at, and a message that I have called Exposing Our Enemies, or The Enemies, sorry, you were right, Exposing the Enemies Devices. Yeah, you were were right, I didn't know my own title. Let's rise to our feet and, and uh, turn our hearts to the Lord. Boy, let's, let's rise. Father, we just thank you so much for gathering us here together, Lord, and we rise before you and we honor you, our heavenly Father. And uh, Lord, we thank you just for gathering us here today. And we pray, Lord, that you would take our hearts and minds, uh, attention, just hold our hearts and minds captive, Lord, the attention of our hearts and minds, that we might honor you, that we might give ear to you, that we might be encouraged and edified by you, that in turn we might bring glory to you. And so have your way here today, we pray in Jesus' holy name. We all say amen. Amen. Have a seat there. How many of you realize that is you recognize that as believers we are in a war? Now, not physically, that is, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against, the Bible says, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And therefore, the scriptures exhort us that we be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You and me, we have been called to fight the good fight of faith, but that's hard to do if we're unaware, that is, if we are ignorant of our enemy's devices. And so we are called to study the Word of God, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, one who rightly divides the Word of truth, because it's in the Word of God that we see the devices of the enemy exposed, the curtain drawn back, the light shone upon them. You know, it was in the book of Corinthians, Paul was writing to them and he was speaking, he was urging them to forgive a brother who though he had sinned, he had repented. And uh, he was exhorting them to receive this man back into the fold. Essentially, he said, listen, if you continue to ostracize, if you continue to exclude this individual, they will be swallowed up in sorrow. And therefore, you're to comfort him. You're to reaffirm your love for him. You are to forgive him. And then he said, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And the idea there is that Satan will take advantage, that is, he will exploit our ignorance of the way that he thinks, the way that he moves, the way that he maneuvers for his own gain. And your enemy is a master battle strategist, and bitterness, unforgiveness is just one of the ways that he will look to gain ground on you. And chapter 36 of the book of Isaiah shines some light on several other ways, not every way, but you know many ways by which Satan looks to assume victory or gain a tactical advantage or achieve your surrender as well. It was a former U.S. Secretary of State, Dr. Henry Kissinger, he once told the New York Times, there cannot be a crisis next week, my schedule is already full. And, uh, you know, it would be nice if we could calendar coordinate the crises, right, that enter the equation of our lives. But crisis never comes at a convenient time. Uh, But if we know the way that our enemy operates, we will be better prepared 
when he postures up against us. And so with that in mind, let's turn our attention here to the very first verse of the 36th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of, uh, who's over the household, pardon me, and then Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Well, I trust that uh, you, if you have been with us, immediately picked up on the fact that chapter 36 is a departure from the way that Isaiah has been, the form and the fashion that he has typically uh, been writing. And he takes a reprieve from the, the prophetic, and now he leans into the historic nature of what's taking place. So this chapter reads a lot like what you might read in 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and such will be the case till we get through Isaiah chapter 39. Now, I, for one, am glad that Isaiah did this because over the last several chapters, we've been reading, haven't we, of Assyria's encroachment upon Jerusalem. And how God has said over and over again that he would see to it that they would not take Jerusalem, but he would make an example of Assyria and he would defend his city. And so now Isaiah takes the time to share with us exactly how that happened. You know, as we've discussed previously, Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, he had come down like a flood from the north. He had completely consumed everything in his path. He had captured every nation. He had conquered every city that stood in his way. And the northern kingdom of Israel has officially been erased, essentially wiped off the map. And so far, he's seen nothing but victory in the southern kingdom of Judah as well. And verse 1 tells us that he come up against all, look at it, all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now, according to Sennacherib's own account, now that archaeologists have unearthed, they have uncovered uh, Sennacherib's own account of these things, and he says that he took 46 cities of the nation of Judah and had by this time carried off some 200,000, a little over 200,000 captives. And now he has stationed himself. He's established a stronghold. By the way, this is what the enemy does, right? He likes to establish a stronghold in your life, a beachhead of operations, if you will, from which he will launch his attacks, his devices. And so he stationed himself about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem in the Judean territory the city of Lachish. And by the way, we're told exactly historically when this took place. It was in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. <clears throat> that marks our calendars at 701 for you guys that are interested, BC. And as the king establishes his stronghold in Lachish, then he dispatches his field commander. By the way, Rob Shaka, if that's, will allow me to say that, Rob Shake, however you want to say it, we'll say Rob Shaka. Uh, that is not a name, okay? Don't think, well, this guy's name was Rob Shaka. This is a title. Think field commander, okay? Uh, so he 
he dispatches his field commander along with a massive army to intimidate and negotiate, more accurately, demand unconditional surrender. And so, ladies and gentlemen, it's showtime, okay? Now, it's interesting to note where the Rabshakeh stood when he began to challenge Hezekiah and his resolve. Did you see it? It was by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Why is that of such... That, that's, that's incredibly detailed, isn't it? And why is that of such importance? Well, this is the same exact spot where a little over 30 years previous, Isaiah had exhorted Ahaz, King Ahaz, who was Hezekiah's dad... To trust in the Lord and to not be afraid when he fell under the threat of a man by the name of Rezin, who was Syria's king, not Assyria. Assyria conquered Syria, but this was a threat back in his day when the enemy sought to come against him. Now, I doubt that this Rob Shockin, you know, this field commander knew that. He just postured up. Uh, where the city's water supply is, because he wants to demonstrate that they're in control and that there's nothing Jerusalem, there's nothing Hezekiah can do about it. If things escalate, and this was the way things would operate in the ancient world, they just shut off their water supply, uh, and they didn't know. Now, uh, those of you who know your Bible know that Hezekiah had already built another tunnel of, to supply water into the city. As a matter of fact, you can visit it this day in uh, Israel and Jerusalem, you can go walk through Hezekiah's tunnel that he carved out to make another route for the water. And just for this situation, it's amazing, really. Uh, but anyway, the idea here is things can go from desperate to deadly in a quick. And so this field commander's postured himself right there at the wellspring, if you will, of life for them. And it's in this place that Hezekiah now needs to make a decision. Now, I think it's worth noting because although there's no doubt overtones here that connect Hezekiah and his dad and all of that, the simple truth for the sake of our application is this. Every one of us, individually, generationally, will be brought eventually to the same place. That place where we have to decide are we going to place our trust, put our faith, our confidence in the Lord? Will we trust him to save us? Or will we capitulate, give in, give up, and go the way of the world? And ladies and gentlemen, I just have to be honest with you here. That's not a decision you can give over to anyone else. We cannot ride on the coattails of our parents or our grandparents. We have to make an individual decision. Will I trust in the salvation of the Lord? Will I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Will I call upon his name or will I capitulate? Will I maybe through peer pressure or fear or intimidation just give in to or go the way of the world? And of course... That equally applies, doesn't it, after we're saved to the stand that you and me, that we individually take on the position of the world versus the principles of the word of God. You know, will we capitulate and say, okay, 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 love is love. Well, you know, my body, my choice, if that's fine, you know, CRT, 
probably harmless, DEI signals progress, you know? Or will we stand firm on the Word of God? Will we trust in the Lord? Will we speak the truth? Will we refuse to compromise? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm just telling you, there is no middle ground. There is no straddling the fence. We are hot or we are cold. We are on or we are off. We are for or we are against. We take our stand on the word of God or we do not. Hezekiah had already tried to negotiate with the enemy. How many of you have found that fatal mistake? You know, he tried, he, and it never, it never works, does it? You can never meet in the middle with the enemy, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I mean, he had tried to pay Sennacherib off. He sent him a huge sum of money. He asked him, I mean, there, there the king of Assyria was putting pressure on him. He's like, just tell us what you want. I'll give it to you. Just leave us alone. And so he exacted this huge penalty, this huge sum upon him. And there's Hezekiah doing everything he can do to come up, to make a compromise. He even scrapes the gold off the doors of the temple. He sends it to him and he tries to pay him, but he discovered what everyone discovers eventually. And that when you're seeking to negotiate, with the enemy and that is this he'll be glad to keep the wealth but he will never keep his word he'll take all you give him but he will not be satisfied he will turn on you he will demand everything from you and until he has you in full submission total subservience family he wants you as his slave and nothing less And until he has you held captive, he will not yield. And so there they are. They're holed up in this city. There's a massive army outside. They are poised. They are prepared to fight if necessary. And the field commander, man, he just takes his position. He just walks up boldly, arrogantly, to speak to these delegates. He wants to demoralize them. He wants to demoralize the people within earshot. He wants to discourage the king. This is his agenda. He's seeking surrender. Look at verse 4. Then the Rab Shaka said to them, Say now to Hezekiah. And by the way, if you read like the account in Kings, I think it's 18 thereabout. Uh, you'll discover that he had two other delegates with him as well, outside the army. So there was like three of the high, how do you say, uh, diplomats from Sennacherib that had come. And so Hezekiah sends three guys out to meet him. That's what's happening here, okay? And so he says, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. What confidence, you might underline it, what confidence is this? In which you trust. I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they're mere words. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? He says, Look, are you trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it? So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt to all who trust in him. By the way, uh, I have no way of knowing this. Truth is, I'm, I'm just kind of speculating. It's complete speculation. But I wonder if, because the field commander here has such accurate information 
regarding the conversations that have been taking place within those walls, it makes us wonder if Sennacherib had successfully embedded spies within the city. And we read this, and, and it's almost as if this Rob Shaka is stunned. I mean, he's shocked. They've taken nearly 50 cities, not to mention put down entire nations by now. And now this remnant that's left in Judah, they've all fled their farms, they've fled their fields, they've holed up in the walls of Jerusalem, and essentially he's saying, I don't get it. I mean, there he is, he's postured up, he's poised, he's got the arm. You can see it in your mind's eye, can't you? He's just got a massive army behind him, and he's yelling out to them, and he's saying, you got some sort of secret weapon in there that I don't know about? I mean, what is it that you're trusting in? Who is it that you're trusting? Why are you resisting rather than surrendering unconditionally immediately? I don't even know why we're doing this. You see, that's what he's saying. He says, you have these plans. You speak of power. You've got nothing. How many of you have heard that before? He's like, you think I don't know about your thoughts, your plans? You think I don't know about your alliance with Egypt? And he accurately describes Egypt as a broken reed, like a staff that if you were to lean on, it would pierce your hand, it would break. Think of like a reed or a piece of bamboo or something that just, it's there it is, but there's no real strength to it, no real rigidity, and it just breaks off and splinters or into your hand. It was just going to snap back on him. And, and the truth is, Isaiah, those of you that have been with us, you know Isaiah has been telling Hezekiah the same thing. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. Don't make an alliance with Egypt. And they had erred exceedingly, egregiously in seeking to align themselves. And God had exhorted them that they were to look to him. They were to trust in him. But they had floundered at the... that kind of at that point, and now they've come to regret it. But he says, look, Egypt is weak. They don't stand a chance in helping defend you against anyone. He says, anyone who's ever trusted in Egypt has only suffered for it, and he's right. But here's the thing. Here's what I want you to see. Why would I don't know if that's happening. But... Um, he says, why, why, you know, the question is, why is he saying this? Discouraging them from trusting in Egypt. Is it so that they'll refocus their eyes, place their trust in the oil, and, uh, and, and fall back into focus on him? No, it was to, to demoralize them. It was to discourage them. It was to get them to give up. And guys, this is what the enemy does to you and to me. It's another one of his devices. If you're writing them down, if you're taking notes. You know, there are many times that Satan will speak truth to you. I mean, he's telling him the truth. And I'm sure you've heard it many times. You know, uh, you're a hypocrite. Who do you think you are? You're a sinful mess. All you do is fail. All you do is falter. All you do is flounder. But does he speak those things to you so that you'll recognize your helplessness and turn to the Lord and... Finally, trust in him completely? No. You know, does he want you to fall into that place of, man, I am a sinner. And you know what? Jesus died for sinners, and that means he died for me. Hallelujah. I can trust in him. I can fall back on him. Is that the resolve he's driving you toward? Not at all. 
He wants to demoralize you. He wants to discourage you. He wants to drive you to despair. He wants you to give up, to give in, and just throw in the towel. All right. Look at verse 7. I'm going to switch these packs. Where's it at, Jared? Back here? There it is. Should be, whoa. Come on, somebody. Verse 7, verse 7. All right, we return to our regularly scheduled program, verse 7. We'll see, guys. I mean, we're working. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now, guys, we've got to give this to him. Uh, He is a master. This uh, field commander is a master of psychological warfare. You see what he's doing here? How many of you recognize, you realize this, that the battle first takes place in the mind? Do you understand that? The first place the battle takes place is in the mind. And this is why the scriptures place such emphasis upon our minds and what we do with it and how we occupy it. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3 says this, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And here's one we quote quite a bit around here. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Guys, I would encourage you to make a study of looking up scriptures that address the mind and see what the Bible has to say about it. You might be surprised. This field commander is systematically attacking and discrediting all that they might hold dear, all that they could possibly hope or trust in. And he's seeking to demonstrate how foolish that is and why it won't work. By the way, how many of you know what propaganda is? Okay. It is the spreading. It is the disseminating of uh, false or misinformation to support or prop up a narrative, or an agenda, okay? What's the narrative? You can't win. You should surrender immediately, unconditionally. So now he has to create a case for that, and that's what he's doing. He says, you can't trust Egypt. If you think you can trust in the Lord your God, Hezekiah has been wiping out his altars. You think he's going to rescue you after that? Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because he's reasoning, listen to this, he's reasoning from a lack of scriptural understanding. People do this all the time. And he thinks he has his point on lock. You know, he's aware of the reform. Again, I don't know if he had spies embedded. I don't know what's going on. But he's aware of the reform that Hezekiah instituted. 
He's aware that he had the altars and the high places destroyed throughout the land. What he didn't know is that what Hezekiah did was in accordance with the word of God. God didn't want people worshiping anywhere they wanted, any old way they wanted. He had a very specific way that people were to approach him. And what he wanted from his people is what he wants from his people today, right? Obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. And the field commander, being an idolater, being a polytheist, thought, hey, you know, the more places to worship, the better. But God had distinguished himself among and above anything else or any, again, old way that people might want to worship. And he wanted a centralized place, specifically, namely Jerusalem, to be the place of worship and sacrifice. But guys, this is where this Rob Shockin, this is where he may have had a modicum, a, a bit of success in his argument. How so? Listen, it's true that what Hezekiah did was in accord with Scripture. But if you don't know what your Bible says, hear me. If you don't know what your Bible says, if you are not a workman that need not be ashamed, one who rightly divides the word of truth, then you might track with what seems to be the logic of the field commander. Listen to me. The enemy counts on your ignorance of God's word in order to lead you to believe a logical sounding lie. Does this make sense? And it's been a device, right? We're exposing our enemy's devices. This has been a device that he's had from the beginning. It's in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 1. Has God indeed said? What's he counting on? He's counting on your ignorance of God's word, of what God said, so that he can supplant doubt and questions and confusion. Again, isn't love love? I mean, it sounds so logical. After all, love God and love others. I mean, right? I mean, isn't that what this is all about? And, and if you don't know what the word of God teaches in truth, you can be easily, seemingly, logically Misled. I hope you're sensing the take home here, and that is that you and me, that we are to be students of the Word of God. Now, in this case, it seems to make sense that the more places you have to worship God, the more pleased God would be with you. But the truth is, hear me on this, we don't have the right to worship God however we feel like it. I hope you understand. That's a big deal today. Guys, we don't have the right to worship God however we feel like it. We are to worship Him in a manner that He Himself has prescribed in His Word. Now, if you don't know His Word, then you are liable to find yourself in a bit of a lurch with that. You understand what I'm saying? Now you find yourself doing all kinds of weird things in the name of the Holy Spirit. Or thinking somehow that you get closer to God when you smoke a joint. You know, or, uh, you know, your church is out fishing on the lake. 
Or it's, you know, on the back nine or hunting in the woods or going on a walk out in nature and all. But is that what the Bible teaches? And guys, I'm not saying you can't worship God when you're out on the lake. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God doesn't give us the liberty to relate to Him however we feel like it. How many religions are there in the world? Actually, you know, uh, there are between, depending on, on which site you want to visit or whatever, there are between 5 and 12 major world religions. I mean, you know, you can think of it. Mormonism, Christianity, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, on and on, and on you go uh, with the various major, most recognized world religions. But you might be surprised to realize that there are over 4,000 recognized religions in the world. Obviously, there are people that have a real problem with the concept that Jesus is the only way to God. Now, as a Christian, you're just too narrow-minded. But ladies and gentlemen, that's the way that God has prescribed. Do you understand that? That's not my idea. That's God's idea. And Jesus excluded any other option when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one. That's categoric, isn't it? There's not a single exception to those words. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he verified that, he ratified that through the resurrection. Okay? It's incredibly exclusive. There is no other way, but yet it's completely inclusive. In other words, it's open to everyone. Anyone can come. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but they can't come any way they want to. We gain access to the Father exclusively by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Full stop. That's it. Okay, now, uh, in verse 8, Now therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? You see what I mean by his efforts of complete demoralization? I mean, he says, look, Egypt's not going to help you. Your God certainly won't help you. And the, and the least of our field commanders have ranks that completely outnumber your entire army. He says, make us an offer. We'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put men on them. You don't even have enough riders to put on them. And so you think you can hold a candle to the shock and awe with which we will utterly destroy you? And this is another of our enemy's devices. Listen, uh, Satan, I want you to know this, guys. Sorry, I'm messing with my mic. It's a different one. Satan isn't really itching for a fight with you. You realize that? A lot of times we think that Satan just wants to pick a fight. He really doesn't want to pick a fight. He'd much rather intimidate you. He'd much rather demoralize you. He'd much rather drive you to despair so that you'll just give up and give in. Uh, because the truth is, if he picks a fight, 
chances are you're going to win. Because greater is he that's in you than he is of this world. And on top of that, win or lose, the battle more than likely will cause you to draw closer to the Lord. That's not what he's looking for. And beyond that, what God does in your life through the battle can be a tremendous testimony turned blessing for those who are looking on. No, he doesn't want to fight. He'd rather convince you of the overwhelming, unfathomable odds against you so that you just toss in the towel rather than trust in the Lord. You know, when Satan was tempting the Lord in the wilderness, he said, look, just bow down and worship me. Sorry. See, guys, I have this clip typically that I don't have, and my back, I'm just going to be honest with you, is sweating. And so like this cord is stuck to my back, and it's pulling down on the mic, and it's driving me crazy. I'm just being honest. So forgive me. First world problem, yeah. See, we try to warm it up in here a little bit for you because all we hear, oh, it's so cold in there, as if you guys can't bring a jacket or a, you know. And so I sit up here and I sweat for you. See that? Some things I do for you. You know, I tell you what. But when Satan was tempting the Lord in the wilderness, he said, look, just bow down. Just worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. What was he doing? He was trying to avoid the battle. Just talk Jesus into throwing in the towel. Take the easy route. Let's make a compromise. Let's negotiate you and me, you see. But what Jesus did is what we should do. He trusted in. He drew strength from the principles and the promises of the Word of God. No yield, no surrender, no backing down. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you see. I'm going to trust in His promises for me. And in verse 10, he says, Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up this land and destroy it. Golly, man, talk about saving the best for last. Not only have you made God mad by destroying all his altars, your God's on my side. He says, Look, he told me to come and destroy this land. Why do you think I've been so successful? You see what he's doing? He's like, Why? Yeah, yeah, you know. And he had been successful in the psychological warfare. Maybe God is on their side. I mean, after all, he's destroying everything. And Isaiah said some of this was going to happen. And, and, and so, you know, the, the Assyrian success. I mean, the Lord has said. But does that mean that God instructed them to do all the things that they did? Not at all. Guys, you know that God can take what the enemy means for evil and turn it for good, right? Use it for his purposes. That doesn't mean that he inspires or instructs people to do the evil that they do. You know, it just speaks to the providential wisdom of God and able to turn the tables on the enemy. You know, God would use the betrayal of Judas to redeem the world. So what do we concede? That Judas was just doing the will of God? Not at all. Again, the providential wisdom of God took the things the enemy meant for evil and used them for good. And so we read in verse, what, 11, Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of, of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, 
Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to all the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Man, he's dropping the brutal realities of a coming siege for them to think about. You know, Eliakim and Shebna and Joah, they say, come on, man. I mean, you're out here and you're saying all this stuff and we're out here in the spirit of diplomacy. and we're, So we're just asking you to speak the language of diplomacy. We understand it. We can speak Aramaic. Let's talk Aramaic to one another. Don't speak our common language in this diplomatic meeting. They're afraid that what he's saying might be taking root in the hearers of the hearts along the wall who are there on the wall. Guys, that's exactly what their enemy wants. So he speaks all the louder in Hebrew. And he says, hey, what I'm saying isn't just for the diplomats. It's not just for the negotiators. It's not just for the mediators. Everyone needs to hear this because everyone's going to die if you don't surrender. And he says, they're the ones who's going to be eating and drinking their own waste. And guys... This, this is the way that battle was often done in the ancient world. You know, we like to picture these guys rushing in, uh, swords flying, uh, people clashing and all of that. You've seen it on the movies and such. And, you know, obviously in an open field kind of a situation, it, it would go that way. But anytime an army would come up against a walled or a fortified city, very rare to never would they draw near to those walls because, you know, they start taking casualties. You get arrows, you get catapults, you get oil, whatever. You know, these kinds of, of things uh, over the walls. And, and, and they'd simply then surround the city out of range of any weapon. They'd cut off all the food, all the water. Remember, he's on the aqueduct from the Fuller's Field. He's right there at the water supply. They would cut off any intake or outflow of food and water. And then they would just wait out there till everyone starved. And then they just walk in and take the city. A siege could take months. It could take years. It could take 10 years, 20 years. They just sit outside, not let anyone in, not let anyone out. And eventually, your supply runs dry and you die. What's the device of the enemy here? The field commander just highlighting these terrible deprivations that await them should they refuse to surrender the device of the enemy here is fear. The enemy loves to intimidate you through fear. Look at verse 13, guys. We're going to pick up the pace here just a little bit. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us, uh, you know, or de and, and this city will not be given into the hand of Assyria. How many times do you hear me? Don't let that pastor tell you you can trust God. You know, do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present. Come out to me and every one of you eat from his own vine. Everyone eat from his own feet. In other words, you can go home. And everyone can drink from the waters of his own cistern, his own well, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine and a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. 
Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Well, here's another device of your enemy. He loves to diminish God's ability and put it out there how miserable you're going to be if you wait on him, if you trust in him. But my, how great it will be if you just surrender to him, to the enemy. Serving God will only lead to your misery. If you want to please God, things are just going to go from bad to worse, you see. The enemy says, make peace with me. Come out to me and life will be great. You know, if you'll just give in to the temptation, if you'll just surrender to your own inclination towards sin, things will be a whole lot better, a whole lot easier. Do you see how attractive he's making slavery and bondage out to be? Did you see that? You can have it all. Just make peace with me. The truth is, we don't know this field commander would even do what he said he would do. The track record says, probably not. But he's referring to this ancient practice of, it's called ethnic cleansing. Forced resettlement. You know, when the Assyrians would conquer a people, they would deport them to these faraway lands, these faraway places. Oftentimes, just like a remix, a shuffle, like they would take one nation out of their land, they'd put another nation in that land, take them over there, put them in that land, and it would keep their spirits broken, it would keep their morale low, they would mix and mingle them, they would force families apart, all of the things. But he's trying to make this horrible bondage sound really appealing. And I'm just telling you, the enemy of your soul does the same thing. He tries to make horrible bondage sound like a really good deal. If you'll just come out to him, if you'll just make peace with him, if you'll just surrender, you see. Now, look at verse 19. He says, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria? Remember, Samaria was Israel's capital. From my hand, who among all the gods of all these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Hey, no one else's gods delivered them. What makes you think it's going to be any different for you? Verse 21. By the way, we're going to close. I don't know who's closing. Is it you, Abby? We're going to close here. So, so we move to these final verses. Look at verse 21. Underline it. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. You can see it, that he just pours it out. He pours it on. He tells them all that's going to happen to them. They're going to be utterly destroyed, completely decimated and devastated. They're going to die unless they surrender to him. And no other gods delivered their people, and their God's not going to deliver them. 
And this is their response. Now, we're going to give it to the people on the wall. We're going to give some credit to the king's representatives here. Because oftentimes it's best, guys, when confronted with demonic logic. Just be quiet. Don't try to win the argument. Just be silent. Commit your cares to the Lord. Listen, walk with the Lord. Talk to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. But answer your enemy not a word. Well, then what do we do? We're going to see next week. So you got to tune in, same bat time, same bat place, next week, okay? Father, we thank you for drawing back the veil on our enemy's devices. God, we want to see his tactics. We want to be aware of his tactics. We want to wage wise and effective warfare for the glory of your name. So God, fill us with your spirit and use us for your glory.